we wish everyone could could experience this level of mobility and, and pleasantness in their in their day to day travels because it is it's it's an absolute joy to just walk to the corner store or, or cycle with the kids to school. Hi everyone, this is John Summerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about the people, places, programs, and policies that help to promote a culture of activity within our communities. It's great to have you along for the ride. In this episode, I have a fascinating conversation with Chris Bruntlett, Marketing and Communication Manager of the Dutch Cycling Embassy. We cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time, including how he and his wife, Melissa, and two kids have adjusted to a massive move from Vancouver, BC to the dynamic city of Delft in Holland. So without further ado, let's roll into episode 11. This is John with the Active Towns Initiative, and I am pleased to welcome Chris Bruntlett. Uh, Chris, welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. No, thanks for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Today is March 26, 2020, and we are in the midst of a worldwide pandemic with COVID-19, and, and that'll certainly come up in our conversations. But before we do that, why don't you explain a little bit about your current situation? You just passed a, a significant milestone in the Netherlands. Could you please give our listeners a little bit of a, a quick overview of how your family came to live uh, in Holland? <laughs> yeah, where where to begin? I mean, uh, this has been an absolutely wild and, and crazy journey for all four of us. But it really began uh, when, uh, in the summer of 2016, we we came to the Netherlands just for five weeks of holiday. Basically, the intention was to write a few blog posts about what Vancouver and, and other American and Canadian cities could learn from the Netherlands in terms of developing a cycling culture and infrastructure and, and policy and the like. And those five blog posts were, as we quickly discovered, never going to tell the full story. We fell head over heels in love with this place, the way the cities felt and, and were designed, not just for cycling, but for walking and dining and virtually everything that the, the urban and transport plans did to support and, and enable urban life in, it, in all of its forms. And so... We knew we had a bigger story to tell, and, and you played the uh, crucial part in the next next stages, and that was introducing us to Heather Boyer at Island Press, who kindly responded to our email when no other publisher was, and uh, worked with us on a, on a book proposal to flush those five blog posts out into a full volume of, of stories about how the Netherlands became such a, a special place and what other cities around the world are doing to follow in, in its footsteps. And that was published in 2008, uh, 2018, sorry, Building the Cycling City, the Dutch Blueprint for Urban Vitality, which uh, very quickly turned us into uh, ambassadors for, for Dutch cycling. Uh, Melissa and I were traveling the world with the kids, Australia, New Zealand, all across America and Canada, talking about our experiences in the Netherlands and how cities could learn from them. And so the inevitable next step was actually going to work for organizations uh, in the Netherlands that uh, that are doing that same thing uh, on a professional level. And so I landed a, a pretty sweet gig with the Dutch Cycling Embassy 
and started there in May of 2019 as their marketing and communication manager. Melissa's at Mobicon, which is a private consultant that that works with city around cities around the world on their mobility planning. So we've uh, yeah been uh, just over a year now, living, working, playing, soaking up everything there is to offer about uh, this lifestyle and and trying to to share our experiences and our expertise now with other cities that are, are looking to follow in the, in the Dutch footsteps. Let's go back to that very first trip. If I remember correctly, I might have contributed to a crowdsourcing funding thing. Was that the trip that, uh, that you did that where you put the word out? Yeah, that's exactly it. So we uh, a five-week uh, European trip is, uh, is quite a, an expensive endeavor. So we first approached the publication that we were writing for, the online publication Daily Hive, for a, a contribution to the, the content that we were going to create. And then we had another, a couple of other private organizations that uh, we had done work for that we also asked for an approach in regards to sponsorship. And then uh, after that, we opened it up to a, a kind of public crowdfunding just asking people to contribute what they can. And, and I don't think we raised a great amount, maybe just over $1,000, but every penny went into uh, helping us get the gear we needed in terms of the photography equipment and, and uh, the expense and, and the time that went into this initial content that eventually yeah, became building the Cycling City. It's really amazing how connections can be made through social media and, you know, help to, to grow a movement. I know when we met in Vancouver that first time, I had made the, the comment to you that I felt that you and Melissa were, were very much ambassadors of activity. And I remember the look on your face, a little bit confused. You're, you're like activity, because oftentimes in our society, we equate activity with exercise. And that's very much not, not where your brain was in terms of, well, you know, we may be ambassadors of something, but it doesn't feel like it's exercise. But I was adamant. I'm like, no, no, seriously, you guys are, what you're talking about here helps support what I call a culture of activity. And even if that's, it's not exercise per se, it's natural movement and active mobility and getting around. Uh, so I find it very ironic that I sort of dubbed you activity ambassadors back then. And then, uh, as you just mentioned, you became sort of ambassadors of Dutch cycling uh, as part of the the book that you had published. And, and now you're representing an embassy, <laughs> a cycling embassy, which is, is kind of cool how that's uh, come around. I want to get into sort of our current situation with COVID-19. Before I do that, though, let's stick with that experience that you and your family went through, that sort of cultural adjustment. You had that first trip to the Netherlands, then you had subsequent trips as part of writing the book. And obviously you did lots and lots of research remotely and interviews remotely as well. But that's still a huge change for your family. Uh, talk a little bit about that adjustment maybe the challenging parts as well as the stuff that is just super, super positive and, and just has you grinning ear to ear every day. Yeah, I, I don't think we, we quite knew what we were getting ourselves into. I think Melissa and I tend to act first and ask questions later. And, and this move may have been completely emblematic of that. You know, it's, it sounds like a great idea moving across the world and, and for your dream jobs and but the reality was that we were uprooting our family from a place that we had 
put roots down in, in East Vancouver. We'd uh, become part of a community. We'd made good friends. The kids had been to the local school for a number of years. And we picked up in the middle of February, in the middle of the school year, uh, and, and took them out of their classrooms, took them away from their friends, and, and uh, dropped them into not just a new school environment, but a new uh, language as well, because uh, all of the, the Dutch public schools are, are in Dutch. So um, that was our primary focus in, in helping them adjust and support them as best we can. And, and we're pleased to report they, they did better than we possibly could have imagined. They, uh, they picked up the language so incredibly quickly. They've made new friends. They're really thriving in, in that environment, uh, socially and uh, academically. But there's no doubt that there have been some, some tears along the way and, and some difficult moments. And for us, I mean, the, the language, while most people do, do speak English here, Dutch is still the language of business and it's the language of friendship and, and familiarity. So uh, we still remain outsiders to their culture until we all fully are fluent in the language. And, and for the kids, they're basically at that point now, one year after we've arrived, they've picked it up so incredibly quickly. But Melissa and I are uh, aging and, and limited brain capacity. It means that we're, we're going to be a few more years uh, before we're also fluent in Dutch. What else to say? I mean, uh, it's everything we, we, in terms of quality of life, it really is everything that we, we wanted and, and, and then some. I think the thing that really struck us about places like Amsterdam and Utrecht when we were visiting is how paradoxically they were quiet and calming, but also vibrant and full of life. Uh, and that just comes down to the, the lack of motor vehicles in the public realm. And we landed in Little Delft here, uh, a small city of about 100,000 people, just because that's where our jobs were located. We didn't know much else about Delft uh, until we arrived. We'd never visited before. And, and the place is just just unreal. I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, what, what, what a pleasant surprise, right? It, it's like living in a postcard, but, you know, it does have, while it's a very historic, you know, city full of character and, and hundreds of years of, of history and the canals and the cobblestones still feels very vibrant and young as a, a huge student population here. Uh, and the, the conditions for walking and cycling are just, yeah. I mean, we, we wish everyone could, could experience this level of mobility and, and pleasantness in their, in their day-to-day travels because it is, it's, it's an absolute joy to just walk to the corner store or, or cycle with the kids to school. Right. So, and let's dive a little bit more into that. You know, you talk about how quickly uh, children do pick up foreign languages. They're, they're thriving in that environment. One of the most encouraging things that uh, I think you've come to appreciate is how it helps support the maturation of your children and reinforcing uh, their sense of self-confidence and independence. Why don't you dive a little bit more into that? Yeah, this, this question is actually well-timed because uh, Melissa and I are in the process of writing a follow-up to Building the Cycling City. And uh, uh, the first chapter will be about independent mobility of children and, and how we can design our streets and our cities to better enable that. And we've seen firsthand what a difference a combination of traffic calm streets and a, a complete network of cycling infrastructure means to not just young people, but also the elderly. And we can talk about that later, but 
they, within a, a period of days of, of arriving, we had gotten them bicycles and they were cycling to school on, on their own at the ages of 10 and 12, um, which is completely ordinary here. Cycling to friends' houses for playdates, you know, cycling to the swimming pool, and then sometimes distances of 10 or 15 kilometers to The Hague uh, or, or nearby cities, uh, Ricewijk, which is probably about seven or eight kilometers from here. So they've experienced a new autonomy and freedom uh, that we didn't have in Vancouver because uh, while the bicycle network was uh, was growing, there were simply just too many busy arterial roads that were that would dissect versatility every direction you wanted to travel. So if you wanted to get to the community center, to the swimming pool, to even to school, uh, they were looking at crossing six lanes, eight lanes of busy traffic, uh, which no parent is... Even the most, uh, you know, pioneering free-range parent is not going to let their children be exposed to that by themselves and, and is going to want to chaperone and, and supervise them. So, yeah, we can, I mean, we could talk at end about what they're doing out there by themselves, making mistakes, learning from the experience, learning about their community, learning about pe- interacting with people, doing things without the supervision of, of mom and dad. And, and I think that's uh, the healthy part should be the healthy part of any any childhood is this unsupervised, unstructured time that unfortunately a lot of, of children that live in car dominated societies don't get because the streets are designed that they almost live on an island and, and need to get chaperoned and chauffeured from their island to the next island to the next island to a, a series of supervised uh, activities. And they are coming out a lot worse for that, I think, because they're unable to make mistakes. They're unable to learn independently. They're not allowed to experience their city uh, at street level. And yeah, I, I think that eventually sets them up pretty poorly uh, as they transition into adulthood uh, and they're suddenly thrown out into the, this wild world and having to get a job or go to college or do any number of tasks not being given the opportunity to try and fail uh, as, a, as a child. Yeah, Chris, but this is just because they're young and fearless, right? This, this wouldn't work for, like, say, your parents. Well, this is the thing, right? It's, it's like it's changed so quickly in three to four generations. We've gone from, well, now what we call free-range parenting was just parenting prior to that. And kids were a lot more active. They were a lot more independent. And unfortunately, I think... In handing our cities over to to traffic and prioritizing traffic, uh, we've given up a, a lot more in return. And, and the children and, and the elderly, basically anyone that doesn't have a driver's license, are, are the first ones to to suffer from that. So let's stick with that. Let's let's talk a little bit about older generations because it's it's not an environment that where we're daring people to participate and you have to be a brave or fearless child. I mean the the reality is is this is an environment that's built to support a culture of activity across all generations, correct? Exactly. Yeah, and and the other thing that's that's really struck us is the number of elderly people you see rolling around the streets of Delft and, and it's really hit home for us. Uh, just walking out on our street, we have a number of elderly neighbors that we regularly interact with. And you can't help but think if they lived in a, a different environment, they would be completely isolated in their home or they would be institutionalized or you know they would be really having trouble just going about their day-to-day activities 
going to the grocery store, uh, meeting with friends, going to play bingo, what, whatever it is that they, they do without that independent mobility, they are really dependent on someone else to give them a drive, uh, a bus that maybe comes every 60 minutes, or, or they are completely homebound. And, and so, uh, again, by enabling a, a mode of transport, we're also enabling people to live their lives with dignity and place the same places where they grew up. We, we don't push them off and, and uh, make them somebody else's problem. And I think, uh, again, these are really key topics that we don't often touch on when we're, we're talking about mobility or, or transportation or urban planning. Yeah, but but Chris, clearly it's in the Dutch DNA, right? It's You, you couldn't take a, an elderly person from North America and, and, you know, invite them over. They're not going to adjust to that, correct? <laughs> Yeah, we've, uh, you know, as you've probably seen on social media, we've hosted both of our parents who are, Melissa and I, uh, all four of our parents are in their late 60s. They're retired and uh, live in fairly car-dependent places. Uh, and and coming to Delft, you know, they've they've uh, gotten on bikes and, and, and seen the city first, experienced the city firsthand through, through the eyes and, and the legs of a local and... and uh, I think it just it just reinforces this idea that people will use the choices that are given to them, and and in a lot of places, unfortunately, we're not providing choices. We're we're forcing them, locking them into one mode of transport and and one choice. And and uh, what what happens when they can't drive anymore? We we seldom ask that question. Did they uh, sort of respond back to you, or and and you know say, "Gosh, you know, we were surprised by this," or now we now we understand why you are so passionate about this? I don't think it reached that point. They're not going to come out right and say that, but you could see it in their eyes. You could see it in their smiles. You could see it that uh, you know just the idea of of sitting out in a in a market square, surrounded by people having a an appetizer and a beer in a in a in a space that used to be a parking lot. That uh, that these are choices that cities make, priorities and values that uh, unfortunately we in North America get often quite wrong by prioritizing parked cars and and moving cars. And and so one thing we actually tried to do with our first book was write something that our parents would read and and understand and and comprehend. And there was a, a bit of a light bulb moment when. Melissa's mother, I hope she doesn't listen to this because she'll kill me. But uh, um, after she read the book, she uh, she started talking to Melissa about this lady in New York City that was kind of repurposing public space. And uh, they themselves had gone to Times Square and, and seen the transformation that, that Janet Sedek Khan was responsible for. And so it, it it's good to see that, you know, we we may not convert them fully into into. Uh, urban enthusiasts and, and advocates, but at least they, they can start connecting the dots to why these, these topics are so important in our day-to-day lives. Yeah, and I think it's important to to point out and to to reinforce that one of the the frequent themes and memes that we put out in social media is that Amsterdam wasn't always Amsterdam, and uh, Delft wasn't always the Delft that we now appreciate and see on on, on the ground now. Specifically, you had mentioned a parking lot and you know sort of your your grand marketplace area where the, uh, I'm not sure which church that is. Is that the new church or the old church? Yeah, the new church, which faces onto, yeah, market. That, yeah, that market 
place area, if I remember correctly, it wasn't too long ago that that, in fact, was a parking lot. 2003. <laughs> uh, and again, it's, it's strange to say that, but we've seen photographs, we've shared photographs on social media that there were uh, as many as 600 cars parked in this beautiful historic square with the 500-year-old church uh, and surrounded by these terraces and restaurants. Uh, and they they objected and, and fought this uh, removal of parking uh, till the bitter end and until the city managed to convince them that this was in their best interest. But it, it just proves that these these conversations, these fights, this resistance to building more human cities are universal, even here in the Netherlands, and making the cities better is a process that never ends and uh, is still still ongoing. Chris, let's go ahead and stick with this sort of theme about how the built environment encourages healthy, active living. What's it been like over this year now? How has it impacted your sense of well-being as a, as a person, as an individual, as a family? Yeah, it's honestly not something that we've uh, spent a lot of time thinking about. I mean, uh, come back to this. And that's the beauty, right? It, is yeah. the, it just it naturally encourages movement. Yeah, I mean, I come back to your your revelation that we were ambassadors for activity. I mean, Melissa and I are the least sporty people uh, that you probably know, and and our children are the same. They they they're not athletic at all, and and none of us have spent any time in a gymnasium or you know really playing any type of competitive sport. But uh, our our movement is simply happens almost incidentally because it's just happens to be the way that we get around by foot or by bicycle. So we, we don't have special clothes. We don't need special equipment. All we need is our, our trusty black bicycles to, to get us from A to B. And I mean, it, it's, it's certainly, I think, one thing we have been reflecting on, both of us, uh, Melissa and I, working fairly high-pressure jobs, uh, is that uh, we really appreciate the, the time that we get to mentally unplug uh, when we're walking or cycling and uh, there's a that only happens when the, the you get your cycling network right. That does not happen uh, when you're constantly dodging cars or or checking over your shoulder for the next uh, hostile enemy. <laughs> so you can get on a bike or, or you can walk for that matter and just uh, unplug and, and get 15 or 20 minutes of me time where you're decompressing from a stressful day or you are setting yourself up for what is going to be a stressful day. And even now, uh, as we find ourselves housebound <laughs> due to the, the coronavirus, we are making a point of, of going out uh, usually after dark and uh, just taking a long stroll through our neighborhood to to get the feel the wind on our face and, and feel the fresh air and and, uh, and stretch our legs a little bit. And uh, I don't think uh, if, if, if we'd ever get that up, it, it would be really tough if, uh, if you know, that was that was taken away from us. Yeah, the, the concept, though, of being able to get natural activity in, in your environment, being able to feel the wind on your face and uh, be able to appreciate your environment at a more intimate level definitely enhances the sense of well-being. And so it's like when we think of a spectrum of health, it's not only physical health, but also mental health and well-being and connectedness to your city, connectedness to nature. I think I saw on social media, you guys did a, a, a nice outing as a family to the beach, something that you 
probably are like, oh, yeah, that's very much within easy biking distance for us. And even though you 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 say you and the the, the family are not sporty in in any sense, you, you don't. It, it just it's natural for you. You know, you've got a a safe, inviting route uh, to get from your you know or to that destination. So you just go for it. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a weird paradox, but, you know, we're, we're quite active and we get daily exercise without ever breaking a sweat. And <laughs> we often talk about how we, we cycle so much because we're lazy, because it's easier than all of the alternatives. And, and cycling for us just becomes kind of a, a faster way of walking around our city. So here, but, but again, you know, Hey, it's the built environment. It's there. It's, it's also because, you know, it's so flat there. You guys never have any challenges that you have to face, right? You're, uh, you're, you're pushing all of my uh, trigger buttons, Sean. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, the, you guys, you guys have some wind from time to time and some weather from time to time. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, if I had a dollar or a euro for every time I heard the flat excuse, and, and there's no doubt that, yeah, the Netherlands is, is as flat as a pancake, and, you know, we have a fairly moderate climate here, but that doesn't change the fact that Florida is the flattest state in, in the U.S., and, and, you know, there's plenty of places in the world that are flat and have pleasant weather and, and lots of wide streets that they could use for cycling infrastructure. The point is that they've designed their cities, their streets, their intersections, for automobiles. And if uh, the car is the answer to hills and, and bad weather, then I think you might be asking the wrong question. The the bicycle has been proven fairly versatile in, in, in Finland and, and, you know, places in, almost in the Arctic Circle. Uh, people will cycle through winter weather if, if, the, if the streets and the cycle tracks are, are provided for them. So I think we, we need to uh, stop uh, even acknowledging or listening to those excuses and start talking about solutions to, to get people uh, out of their cars. In the second half, we discuss the pandemic, the impact of motor vehicles on sociability the role and activities of the Dutch Cycling Embassy, as well as strategies cities can employ to help support meaningful change. But first, just a quick reminder, if you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe to the Active Towns podcast, share it with a friend, and make a donation so I can keep this content coming. Now, back to the episode. Yeah, you just mentioned reallocation of of the, these wide streets. So let's go ahead and and address the eight uh, hundred pound gorilla in the room. Uh, we're we're currently in a shelter in place order here in Austin, Texas. Uh, I I get the sense that you're in a similar type of situation there in Delft. So I mean, we, we've got this this interesting dynamic right now going on where the the number of motor vehicles on our streets have you know gone down by 90% or so and at least in our neighborhood we're seeing a constant stream of people walking and biking in the middle of the street reclaiming that public realm um in in, in our particular neighborhood uh the streets do not have sidewalks so 
uh, and even if they did have sidewalks, it's still probably safer so that you can maintain your physical distance to be in the middle of the street. And that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing lots and lots of people uh, individually, as couples, as families, walking, biking, strolling, rolling, all manner of active mobility down the middle of the streets. We're seeing also various cities in North America, and you can probably chime in about what you're seeing around the world about scrambling to, to do pop-up bicycle infrastructure. I think you phrased it as, you know, accelerating the reallocation of space. Let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah, um, this is kind of maybe one of the good news stories that comes out of this global pandemic and 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 the horrible reality of uh, coronavirus is for the first time, a lot of people are experiencing Dutch cities. <laughs> they are they're experiencing quiet traffic calm streets. They're experiencing a city where they can hear all of a sudden we're hearing uh, or reading reports of people being able to hear the birds in midtown Manhattan and being able to hear the church bells in Brooklyn and, uh, and, and cycle on roads in Auckland, New Zealand that, that used to carry 30,000 cars a day. This, I think, has, is going to have a tremendous effect on, on the way people think about their streets and what they're designed for and, and, and who their primary users are. Because once you've seen that reality of human-centered mobility and, and you've been given that space to exist, it's really, really hard to give it, give it back. And, and our minds uh, here are, are hearkening back to the OPEC oil crisis that occurred here in the Netherlands in 1973. We obviously weren't here, but uh, all the reports we read and, and we wrote extensively about this in the book was for six weeks, the Netherlands was a subject to an oil embargo where the price of gasoline skyrocketed. They actually had car-free Sundays for, for those six, uh, six weeks. And suddenly people were roller skating in, in the middle of a motorway. They were having picnics. They were riding horses. They were cycling. They could they could experience their streets on a human level after, you know, almost two decades of them being dominated and filled with cars. And a lot of people say that was the, the light bulb moment, the aha moment when the entire country realized that this was not the direction that they, they wanted to pursue, that they wanted to change some of their priorities and, and, and start building streets that were more amenable to walking and cycling and, and public transportation. And so, I, you know, the old uh, Winston Churchill quote is never let a good crisis go to the waste. And I hope if we get anything out of this really horrible situation, it's uh, an understanding that our cities can look and feel differently and our streets can be used for more than just moving these big chunks of metal at very dangerous speeds. And so time will tell if, if that's the case, but uh, I, I'm I'm feeling optimistic for the first time in a long time because, uh, as you hinted, you know, cities are now accelerating their plans for bicycle networks for car-free streets. Uh, and maybe, you know, in, in five short weeks, the coronavirus has accomplished more than, than uh, urbanists have in the last five years. It's certainly something that I'm noticing in terms of just the level of sociability that's happening out on our streets at the very same time that we're quote unquote social distancing. Uh, I don't particularly like that that term social distancing. I prefer physical distancing. Uh, but 
you know, that's what I'm seeing is I'm seeing the, the sort of the zeitgeist of out on the streets is enhanced neighborliness, enhanced sociability. We're seeing people stroll down our street that I, I've never seen these people before in my life. <laughs> and, and yet they're, they're strolling by, they're, they're waving to us if we're in the front yard, uh, doing some gardening or something. And, uh, it, it, it makes me think about that sociability index and how that, uh, you know, happens when you don't have the interference from, uh, high volumes of motor vehicle traffic. And, and I know that, you know, based on what you posted earlier on LinkedIn, that you were diving into, uh, Donald Appleyard's, uh, old study. And, and I think you spoke with his son, Bruce, uh, talk a little bit about that concept and, and share with our listeners what that study was about and why this makes a difference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm still, to be honest, processing. We had a, about a 90-minute interview with, with Bruce Appleyard uh, just last night, and uh, it was such an enlightening conversation because his father, 50 years ago now, in 1971, had written this, conducted this study of three streets in San Francisco, uh, which he categorized, a, a, based on their volume of traffic, a, a light traffic street, a moderate traffic street, and a heavy traffic street. And uh, his findings were quite extraordinary in, in that, and this we I think we understand quite quite deeply now, fifty years later. But at the time, this was this was uh, a bit of a revelation that the more traffic on the street, the more volume of cars, the more danger, the more stress, the less time people will spend outside on their own street, and that means less time interacting with their neighbors. It means less of a sense of ownership of that street. It means they're less likely to put out benches or plant trees or flowers or, or, or the like and, and to personalize that space. And, and ultimately, it means less friends and acquaintances on that street. So they don't know their neighbors. They're less likely to know their neighbors. They're less likely to interact with their neighbors because they're less likely to uh, spend time out on that street. And so, uh, I mean, it, it, it doesn't end there. The, the impacts of this traffic uh, are immense. The, the people that lived on the heavy traffic street, he found, actually spent the majority of their time at the back end of their apartment, away from the, the noise and stress. So it, it, it goes more than just how it impacts the dynamics on the, on the sidewalk, but also how those people live along that street. And, and ultimately, you know, he concludes that this is a real conflict between the people that live on the street and the traffic uh, or the people that create the traffic on that street. And unfortunately, up to now, even in the 50 years since the study has been written, uh, cities have prioritized the, the flow and volume and speed of that traffic rather than the people that live on those streets. And I hope, uh, again, more than anything, that with those volumes and speeds and, and uh, levels reduced, that people are now getting outside, spending more time, getting to know their neighbors, interacting with each other. And uh, that even when the cars and, and things do go back to normal, that there will be a new appetite or a, a demand for you know more humane conditions, e even just outside our front door. Pandemic aside, let's let's talk a little bit about that momentum that you're seeing as a representative of the Dutch Cycling Embassy. Yeah, so our, our work at the at the Dutch Cycling Embassy is kind of two pronged. We host a lot of international delegations, almost on a well, definitely on a weekly basis, and, and sometimes three or four per week. Obviously, that's dropped off now, but 
at, at its peak uh, uh, last September. You know, we were we were doing daily <laughs> visits from uh, municipal governments, uh, politicians, engineers, planners, uh, advocates from from all over the world that were coming to the Netherlands to to study how the streets looked, felt, felt were engineered, uh, and that's uh, I think it's tremendously important part of our work, especially getting the politicians to understand and appreciate why why these issues matter. And uh, because they're ultimately on the front lines when when a proposal goes out there and they the controversy inevitably erupts. Uh, and if you've been to the Netherlands and experienced it firsthand, I think you're more likely to stick to your guns and and, uh, and maintain that, that enthusiasm without uh, backing down. But the other side of our, our work is uh, actually traveling ourselves around the world and hosting workshops and technical briefings and helping these decision makers, these engineers, these uh, policy makers to go through and solve the specific challenges they're experiencing in their city. Uh, and every city is experiencing the same challenges. It's it's affordability, it's congestion, it's uh, air quality, it's sound quality, it's safety. And lucky for us, the bicycle is the solution to most of those challenges. And so uh, we will look at specific corridors, specific intersections, specific pieces of policy that they're working on. And by helping them find solutions, we're also passing along these decades of, of institutional knowledge that, that comes out of the Netherlands. Because the, the planners and engineers here have been doing this uh, since the, the mid-1970s. Uh, they've gone through the trial and error process. They've made all the mistakes. They uh, figured out best practice for virtually everything. And now they're in a position to hopefully offer some guidance and leadership to other cities that are just getting started on these journeys. And that is, I think, the the big revelation that comes out of these workshops is up to now, these, these uh, engineers and transport planners have been told their job involves one thing, and that is uh, moving cars as efficiently as possible. And, uh, and suddenly they're being asked to do something differently and they're not quite sure how to go about it. And so uh, we, we're we happy to provide the, the, the guidance and expertise and knowledge that they need to, to get that job done. What is driving that process? Uh, I mean, I think it, it is just a search for answers and understanding that we can't keep widening streets and motorways and building our way out of this, those, those myriad crises. We need to start thinking differently. And I think social media plays a, a huge role in that. We're, we're now seeing what other cities around the world are doing and the advocates and, and leading politicians are seeing what's happening in Vancouver or Calgary or Austin or, or Auckland, New Zealand uh, or any number of cities and saying, well, why don't we try that here? Why don't we learn from them? Uh, if they can do it, then, then surely we can too. And people are learning from each other. And I think they're also kind of competing with one another. And, and that's a good thing uh, because at the end of the day, everybody, everybody wins out of that process. What else would you like to add about that concept of, of that sort of blueprint approach and also dive a little bit more into why you chose to use the, the term urban vitality in the title of your book? Uh, yeah, so the idea that my city's different is something we hear all the time. Uh, you know, our, as you said earlier, my city's not Amsterdam. Uh, and the easy response to that is, well, virtually every Dutch city is, is different. And if you go to Rotterdam, uh, it looks and feels a lot different from Utrecht, which looks and feels a lot different from Groningen or Eindhoven. Or, uh, and, and the fact of the matter is there's 202 cities and towns in the Netherlands that are, are great places to cycle 
It's not just uh, the big capital cities. It's not just the small villages. It's a variety of, of contexts and scales and uh, cultures and, and, and geographies. And it is really just using this approach, which is a kind of a holistic planning approach to mobility that doesn't just build one bike lane at a time, but, but looks at the big picture and integrates the cycle network with the car network, with the train and tram network to create a, a multimodal system that works for everybody. Uh, and and uh, uses cars, sure, but it, the cars serve a purpose for a particular type of trip. Uh, and if they want to drive through the city, uh, well, they have to behave in a certain way through the design of the streets and uh, the way the traffic flows are are dictated. So, yeah, I think it's... Uh, but Chris, it, it sounds like what you're saying is that this is complex. <laughs> you yeah. know, there's all yeah. these different systems. There's all these different drivers. I mean... Even when you just mentioned earlier about, you know, the oil embargo of 1973, you know, that that wasn't the single thing that sort of changed and p- had people pivoting. I mean, it was multivariable, all the different things that were happening, including several different political action or community led groups like the uh, Stop to Kindermort uh, and many other things. So. I think it's human nature for us to oversimplify things and try to basically say, oh, well, we can't do that because of this. And the reality is, is that this is incredibly complex. And and what's really quite wonderful about what we're seeing in the Netherlands right now is that it, it is this multivariable type of thing, multiple different types of systems. It gets changed and adapted. Uh, trial and error is constantly happening there. So that's that's one of the things that's just really quite encouraging. And I think that that's, that's part of what you're trying to communicate to, with these groups when they come over too. Yeah, it's it's not only complex, but it's it's it takes a tremendous amount of time. I mean, we're talking decades and uh, multi generational transformation. Uh, and and here in the Netherlands, they are now reaping the rewards of decisions that were made 50 years ago. And so, uh, nothing is going to happen overnight. You can't just decide you're going to build Utrecht Central Station in 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 the middle of your city, and and it will fix all your problems. Uh, Utrecht Central Station is a, a beautiful place that's uh, 12,000 bike parking spaces and, and is served by virtually every rail uh, route in the country. But it's, again, the product of all these uh, mobility plans and decisions and, and, and networks that have evolved over, over decades. And you can't just expect to have a solution like that or to build something like that uh, overnight or even in one political cycle we're talking about. Uh, and that's what what becomes difficult for politicians to envisage is it's it's not just about their chances of re-election. It's not just uh, something that's going to happen w- within their time span. It's something that's on a much longer time scale than than even just the, the four year political cycle. But it seems like we're in a situation now currently with this pandemic, as well as the sense of urgency that we have worldwide and dealing with uh, global climate change issues that we may need to act fast and we may need to take advantage of uh, opportunities that present themselves and maybe do it lighter, quicker, cheaper and and learn from constant iterations and then fine tune and move forward. Address that a little bit. 
Yeah, I think one of the things we always try to emphasize is is the the problem is not one of engineering. It's not a structural problem. It's almost always cultural and and political. And and so if cities want to break through those kind of that inertia that's created by a fear of change and certainty, they're going to have to come up with some really quick and smart strategies. And you can point to the city of Calgary's pilot cycle track network that it built out very quickly in 18 months for a very small amount of money that really changed the mental map of that city. Because at the time, there were a lot of naysayers that thought this sprawling prairie city in, in the middle of Canada, that people wouldn't get on their bikes, but by implementing this very low risk, low cost project and just giving it a try for a few months and promising people that if it didn't work, if it affected traffic, if it people didn't use it, that they would just rip it out and, and go back to the status quo. And that is, a, I think, a shining example of, of way cities can, can try something uh, with relatively low risk and cost. And it almost always works out uh, just fine. In, in Calgary's case, it was something like 1.3 million new bicycle trips that were induced simply by reallocating 2% of the downtown street network. Uh, so it's, it's just coming up with, with ideas and strategies, I think, to break through that, uh, that cultural and political stasis. For concerned citizens, advocates, city leaders who are attempting to make a cultural shift, they're trying to change their built environment and encourage a, a culture of activity. What advice do you have for them? Yeah, I think that's it's a tremendously important point, and and it's something we're seeing uh, with a lot of the work we do with the Dutch Cycling Embassy is giving voice to those people who don't necessarily know or have the time to advocate for these issues. They just want a safe space to walk or cycle. They want their kid to get to school in the morning. They you know would like to be able to get around their city. But they haven't really given it much thought, and they're not active on Twitter like um, you know you and I and, and and a lot of the activist community. They wouldn't necessarily go out to a town hall meeting or or write an email to their city councilor in support of this. So to give those people a voice and a platform and 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 a way to engage with them to help the politicians see that that in a lot of cases there's this quiet majority in a city, 60, 70 percent of people that would wholly support changes to the streetscape if it meant more pleasant conditions for, for them to walk or cycle. They just, they don't know it yet, or, or they don't have the time or energy or the wherewithal to, to voice that support. And, and unfortunately, I think the politicians fall into a trap of listening to their friends or listening to the, the loudest voices in the room that are uh, uh, out in opposition to, to these proposed changes out of, uh, again, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. But uh, if they do hopefully uh, listen to some of the other voices in their city and, and find a way to talk to them, then they'll know that these, generally speaking, these, these kinds of uh, initiatives are, are broadly supported by the, the, the residents of their city. Gee, I suppose that's probably why the, that phrase urban vitality was in the title. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it just, I think it comes back to this, uh, again, this paradox of, of cities in the Netherlands being some of the quietest, calmest, uh, most relaxing we've ever experienced. But at the same time, they're full of life and economic opportunity and prosperity and uh, social connectivity. And, uh, you know, the you'll go out on a, well, maybe not on a spring day like today, but this time last year, you'd be uh, outside and the streets would be full of people cycling and the terraces would be full of people 
eating and drinking and all the shops will be full. They're not depending on two parking spaces and customers that are driving to their shops to spend money. They exist because uh, their city uh, is an attractive place for people to come and, and spend time and, and also spend money. And uh, I think that's uh, unfortunately lost in a lot of these conversations and with these changing times, not just now with uh, with Corona, but uh, the general trends towards online shopping and, and uh, people staying at home because they can get virtually everything they need from their uh, Netflix to their meals to yeah their <laughs> their clothes. They don't need to go out and, and shop anymore. So you have to give them a compelling reason to leave the house. And, and uh, I don't think making it easier to drive there to your shop is, uh, is compelling enough of a reason. You need to give them places where people can interact with one another. And, and the only way you do that is, is by making, taking space away from cars. Right. Yeah. Changing that built environment and, and transforming the urban space so that it is more conducive to this urban vitality that, uh, that I think everybody is, is hopeful for. And, um, any additional things that you'd like to add that we haven't yet covered? Hmm. Yeah. Not that I can think of. I mean, uh, well, tell us a little bit more about, uh, the upcoming book. What's the, the, I know it's uh, probably still kind of, you know, being shaped and, and formed, but you, uh, you obviously have a, a, enough of an idea that you're starting to do some interviews and, and all that. What, what can our, our listeners expect in, in, uh, in your second publication? Yeah, I, I think with our second book, Melissa and I really want to move beyond the bicycle and, and start talking about what, what the Dutch call low car cities, which are, are cities with low levels of car volumes, access and, and speeds, and what that means for the residents that, that live and, and work and play in those cities. So cycling is a, is a tool that Dutch cities use to achieve that goal of becoming a low car city, but it's not uh, in and of itself the, the end goal. So there are all these just amazing things that we've experienced, our children have experienced, that we've been kind of documenting on social media and filing away as, as examples of, of topics that we would like to talk about. And so we've come up with kind of 10 key concepts that we want to discuss from social connectivity to uh, noise pollution to uh, accessibility for the less able body to resiliency, funnily enough, which is... Uh, becoming more and more relevant in these days and and also what it means for for the aging and for the young and these are all i think conversations that we don't have nearly enough when we're talking about uh, our transportation and our mobility networks and and so uh, we're talking to academics and sociologists and people that not aren't necessarily in the world of transportation planning or or cycling uh, about the impacts that uh, high traffic volumes have on on us as a, as a species coming from an environment in Vancouver where we had tens, if not hundreds of thousands of cars zooming through our neighborhood on a daily basis. Now we're, we're experiencing the polar opposite of that here in Delft. And I think it's an important conversation to start. So we're actually, hopefully, uh, knock on wood, getting going on chapter one tomorrow. And we've got now 10 months to deliver the manuscript to Island Press at the end of 2020. Wish you all the best of luck with that. I think you may have mentioned once that you you felt like you wanted to get started on this project while some of the things that you were experiencing individually and as a family were still fresh in your mind. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think this is one of the realities of living in 
what we refer to as the goldfish bowl now is you become immune to its charms and its magic the longer that you live here. So uh, now 12 months into our Dutch lives, we find ourselves getting annoyed by things that used to delight us. Uh, the other day I was cycling home from work and there was a group of young girls coming home from field hockey practice. They must have been about 11 or 12 years old riding in a group in front of me, and, and I found myself getting annoyed at their in, inconsiderate cycling, whereas, uh, and having to go around them uh, because they were riding too slow, whereas, you know, just 12 months ago, I'd be absolutely delighted at the prospect of, of a group of young girls feeling confident and enabled to to cycle on their own city streets. So I think people that, are, that have grown up here and have been immersed in it totally take it for granted. They assume it's this way. Uh, everywhere else, and and so we wanted to kind of strike while the strike while the iron is hot, and and while we still have that enthusiasm and that sense of wonder in this place to try and and get it down in writing before it fades away. And it's kind of a sad way to think about it, but I think the the normalcy and and the acceptance of uh, it is is part of its charm and its magic. And as you mentioned, it's so much more than uh, about the bicycle. It's so much more than the cycling as as a mode of transportation. It's 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 so multivariable in terms of quality of life and not just mobility too. There's there's so many different aspects to it of you know just that environment and how welcoming it is. Any final thoughts? Anything else pop in your head? No, I, you know, this is uh, obviously a, a very strange and uh, concerning time in, in history, and, and none of us have really experienced anything like this in our lifetimes. And, and uh, with all the, the, the fear and uncertainty, I'm, I'm quietly optimistic that we can hopefully find some common ground when it comes to what our cities are designed for. And now that people have experienced the charm of the Netherlands without having to leave their own city, that... Uh, that they can perhaps uh, start pushing more for, for change in their own city. Yeah, I think I made the, the comment yesterday that it, it feels as if we're living in an open streets event <laughs> where, you know, the, 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 the volume and the, the, of motor vehicles on the streets have been completely turned off. And, you know, we've turned the streets loose, you know, turned the people loose on the streets uh, to, to enjoy and, and ex- appreciate that. Chris, Thank you so much for all your support of the Active Towns Initiative over the years. And thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise, John. Yeah, no, appreciate your own support and uh, everything you've done for Melissa and I. And yeah, we look forward to uh, hopefully seeing you again in person sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Say hi to Melissa for me. Will do. Okay. Okay. Cheers. Bye for now. Thanks everyone for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and you stay safe and healthy during these challenging times. Don't forget to head over to our show notes for links to the content that we've referenced in this episode and how you can contribute to the Active Towns Initiative. That's all for now. So until next time, this is John signing off, wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.